can't even take joy in all of the uh, the sync memes going around today. It's gonna be May. <laughs> you can take a little joy, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> a tiny bit, a little joylet. Uh, yeah. I took joy in Steph's taking joy of your singing. <laughs> And that's you know that's what we're here for. That's what we try to bring the people. It has such a good boy band quality to it. <laughs> you know, I've been told that before, so <laughs> I haven't. But I'm kind of surprised I haven't. <laughs> oh, so have a lovely show. Thanks, friend. And in that boy bandish quality, I leave you with a. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? It's okay. Usually, I go for great. I'm going to be honest and say uh, that things are okay. Uh, work-wise, things are going really well. It's more just like personal stuff and everything going on in the world that's making it more okay. And to combat some of those okay feelings, I am on a journey to discover my favorite Pop-Tart flavor. So I've been buying a new set of Pop-Tarts every three days, four days, depending how quickly I'm going through a box, and then keeping track of which one will be my favorite. Okay, what's the, we need to make like a formal, like final four bracket style version of this. What's the current winner? How's this going? I need to understand a lot more about this. I'm only three flavors in so far. And I'm not buying the traditional, like the name brand Pop-Tarts. I'm buying a different one because I looked at some of the ingredients and I was like, whew, that's a, that's a lot of words I don't understand. So I found another version that's a bit Bespoke simpler. artisanal and- Pop-Tarts. And now you're ranking the flavors of those. You lost me a while ago. <laughs> you had me and then you <laughs> lost me. <laughs> So I've been through three flavors. My my go-to is usually the unfrosted strawberry. Those are my favorite. Wow. And then we are the other people. one. <laughs> Wait, what's your favorite then? Uh, if I'm going to do this, which to be clear, doesn't happen often. We bought one box during the pandemic because I went to the supermarket and I kind of panicked. And so I grabbed s'mores Pop-Tarts is the answer. So if I'm, if I'm going to do this, it's like if I'm going to drink soda, I drink Mountain Dew because let's be ridiculous about this thing. If I'm having a Pop-Tart, it's a s'mores Pop-Tart. But once we had that one box... We decided that cannot happen anymore. So, and even bespoke artisanal pop darts, I think, are not safe. A little better, certainly, but not safe. Agreed. I like how you're now the s'mores pop tart, and I'm the plain strawberry pop tart. These are like our <laughs> our um, pop tart spirits. But anywho, <laughs> so I've been through the plain strawberry, and then oh, but I do have a new favorite. My new favorite is one that's frosted, and it's a uh, cherry pomegranate is really good well that's a fancy flavor and i'm glad that you got the frosting back in there because the like lack of frosting just doesn't feel right if you're gonna do if you're gonna have a pop tart like this is essentially candy that you're eating let's just accept that embrace that truth and run with it i mean granted you know whatever works for you but i'm kind of glad to hear that you accepted frosting back into your life i hear some judgment but that's cool i'm cool with it i tried to walk it back a little at the end because i heard it too <laughs> i'm happy with my playing pop tarts <laughs> But yeah, uh, so that's been uh, part of my week. I've got some more interesting code stuff we can chat about. But uh, how's your week going? Uh, It's going well. Similarly, you know, the world's complicated right now and it's difficult to not have that blend into the day. And, you know, all the days kind of look the same. But um, work is going well for me. And yeah, things are mostly good. So yeah, good. I am good. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. 
Well, transitioning a bit into some of the code stuff, I did run into an interesting bit when I was writing some Ember tests this past week. So the application that I'm using, uh, we're testing with Mocha and using Chai assertions. And the interesting bit that I ran into is while writing a test, I was using that find method to then find an element that's in the DOM and then do stuff with that element, either maybe look at the text that's there, click on it. And I kept running into an error that just didn't make any sense to me. So it was something along the lines of like the object passed in or the object tested must be like an array, a map or an object or some other types. But instead, I was giving it undefined. I was like, okay, so there's something wrong with the page where like I'm looking for this element and that element is clearly not on the page as I expected. So I started debugging and I would pause the test and then I could inspect it, which is a really nice flow. But then I could assert that it was actually there, but my test couldn't find it. And I spent a good while on this trying to understand, like, why could I see this HTML element on the page, but my test couldn't find this HTML element. And it took me a while to realize that I'd forgotten to import the method find from Ember test helpers. And it didn't notify me that I hadn't imported the method that I needed because the window object is accessible. And so when I'm not using the Ember test helper find method, it seems to be calling the window find function, which then returns true or false, which doesn't find my element. What is find on the window? I couldn't tell you. (laughs) Uh, But I do know that apparently it's a method. I don't know why one would use it but it's a method that's on the window object. And it seems to be from what I can tell, because that's what I was wondering. I was like, well, if I forgot to import find from test helpers, then what find am I using? What find is returning true or false instead of using the test helper definition? And from what I can gather, it seems to be the find that's on the window object. Yeah, there does seem to be one there. Window.find. Let's look this thing up. Non-standard. That's the first thing in the documentation. Finds a string in a window. I don't want that. That's not a thing that I want. A string to search for. The name of the argument is actually a string, like lowercase a, capital S, string, a string, which is great. Uh, No, it looks like everything's prefixed with a for some reason. So it's a case sensitive. I wonder if this is just my documentation locally. I'm looking at this in dash, but... Okay, cool. Uh, Window.find seems to exist. Yeah, because it would have been undefined is not a function. I've certainly run into that plenty, but um, huh, interesting. Yeah. And since the window object is a global object, apparently it's available in the test as well. But it was one of those error messages that it took me a while because I just I figured like, okay, like you can't find my element. And so I'm now trained that anytime I see that specific error message, I immediately know it's because I forgot to import find. But I had to go through that like pretty painful. Like it was one of those moments where I was just staring at the screen and had like my head in my hands. And I was like, what? I'm missing something like I'm missing something very obvious here. And then I finally found that. Uh, So that was one of my testing adventures from the week. Mm, I had a vaguely similar thing where in the past I worked on upcase. And so I spent a lot of time in that code base. And in upcase, there's the concept of trails. Trails are roughly the name for courses in upcase uh, for historical reasons, but never got around to the renaming. Probably would have been better as course. But anyway, they were trails. And so trail is a word that I've typed many, many times in a code editor. And my hands apparently just only ever want to type that word. But now I'm working in a code base that has the concept of trials. And I have typoed trials so many times now. And the particular one that I ran into recently was I was using an instance variable in a view called trail because I had typoed it. But instance variables, when they're not initialized, default to nil. 
And so blah is not a method on nil. And I'm like, I, I am setting it. I am looking at that controller. I can see it. And the words look so, so similar. And it's one of those cases where Ruby's uh, defaulting to nil behavior had bit me pretty hard. I lost more time than I like. It was 20 minutes, but it was a very, very frustrating 20 minutes of just like staring at these two things, restarting the server over and over again and being like, come on. Yeah, looking back at it, like, like you, like I lost 20 minutes uh, looking into this, which then when I say that, I'm like, well, that's not too bad. But it was it was a tough 20 minutes of just like not knowing like how next to like debug this and figure out what I'm doing wrong. And the other interesting bit is I was surprised that the error message was telling me that I had passed undefined to the expectation. So it wasn't even telling me uh, because apparently the window.find function will return a Boolean. It's true or false. So it wasn't telling me that I had passed true or false to my expectation. It was undefined. And in my specific case, that was because I was calling inner text on the element, expecting it to be there, and then wanted to check the text. And apparently calling text returns undefined instead of anything else in the world, but it returns undefined. Is that true? False is in a special event. Yeah, now, um, look at that. You can just type whatever and it's, oh man, JavaScript. Sometimes, all the time, you are a little too permissive. <laughs> yeah, that, that part was fun. It was like that famous JavaScript uh, presentation, the WAT, the W-A-T. Mm, yep. Yeah. Which we'll have to include a link to in case anyone has not seen it, but that's a real good presentation that tells some truths. Uh, but yeah, so that was uh, one of my small adventures from the week. How about you? What's going on in your world? A couple different things. Small one, but a uh, thing that I don't know that I've talked about much on the show before is draw.io which is a website for making diagrams, which I absolutely love. I got to use it a bit today to draw an architecture diagram, basically like what's the state of the system right now, the whole platform, what are all the pieces and the apps and the services and the whatnot, and then what might we want it to look like in the future? Unsurprisingly, my before and after work collapse all services together into one thing, put it all back together. <laughs> it's always my answer in architecture diagrams. But draw.io was just wonderful to be able to do that quickly and easily and iterate on it and group things and move to the back and just all the functionality that I want, but accessible in a web browser and very nice thing. Nice. I have I've heard of draw.io, but I haven't used it myself. So that's cool. You had a chance to take it for a test run. Yeah, it's, I've used it a few times in the past. And I know like Joel uses it for a lot of his diagrams and blog posts and conference talks and things like that. And I think he's a great example of using it to really good effect to add just a little bit of visual support to otherwise like a lengthy bit of summary of a technical concept can get like very confusing. But I think he does a really great job of drawing some box and arrow diagrams that just add a little bit of clarity. Um, I'm also super intrigued by it as like a piece of technology. It works really well. It's very good at what it does. I don't know what it's implemented in, but I've occasionally thought about like, man, it would be fun to like rebuild that using technology X to try it out. Like Elm in particular is the one that comes to mind. It'd be very hard and not a thing worth doing in the way that I always come up with stuff to do that's not worth doing, but it could be fun, you know? Wasn't there a Ralph Palooza where we built something similar, not nearly as advanced, but you could essentially have several people on the same page and they could draw and see what the other person was drawing? We did. Uh, that was actually myself and Joel, as well as Herman and Alex Sullivan. So you did build draw.io. Well, no, but different. Uh, it was mostly about like a collaborative whiteboard was the goal there, as opposed to like a diagram editor, which this thing's really nice for being able to like select a group of things and move them or resize them as a group and things like that. Whereas the thing we made was using WebSockets. I think we use WebSockets. I'm pretty sure of that, but like sharing a whiteboard session on two different computers. So if we're pairing, we can also have like a little whiteboard session that we can both squiggle on, but it's very much squiggles and there was no ability to like resize or recolor. And like once you drew on that canvas, man, that's drawn on. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was thinking of draw.io as more of like a whiteboard collaborative tool and it's more for diagrams. 
I actually don't know if it has any collaborative features in it, but anytime I've used it, I've been, it's me trying to document something so I have a visual. I wonder, actually, interesting question, but I feel like Google also has some sort of thing like that. I feel like there's a lot of tools in this space, but I really like draw.io. So that was a fun thing for my week. But um, in other slightly more substantial things that I did in the past few weeks, I went on a real adventure of self-discovery and learning. I had an N plus one query in a REST API endpoint that I tried to beat. And it took a few tries, took three different tries, but I eventually got there. So I figure I can describe the like, where did I start from? What was I trying to do? And then what are the different approaches and what actually worked in the end? So basically, we have a REST API that has an endpoint that is consumed by some mobile apps that want to basically pull down a bunch of content all at once. So the structure of the data is actually pretty nested from this endpoint where it's getting the like outer categories and then all of, let's say, products within that and then even some nested sub associations like what are the tags on the products or things like that. So there's at least three levels of nesting or hierarchy in the JSON response that we're sending back, which immediately raises my GraphQL alarms. But this is a REST API and it will remain a REST API at least for some amount of time. But the difficulty that I had was the, so let's say it was categories and then within that are products. There's also the idea of like a featured product, but that association exists down at the product level. And I wanted to eager load those. So like the product of the day description for each product, if it had one. And initially, that was a very big N plus one that was going on. So every single product was causing actually two additional database queries because we were both getting the date that it's the product of the day and the description for product of the day. And as a result, there's a couple hundred of these. And so this is a lot of extra queries that were happening. And I tried to solve this the first time by switching the like product of the day logic into a has one. So a product has one product of the day association. The actual way it's implemented is a has many. So a product has many product of the day references or whatever you want to call it. And I wanted the one that's closest to now. So the nearest product of the day reference. And that was implemented as just a method on the product class. When you say product of the day, the one that's nearest, are you talking about in terms of date, the one that's just like the first one you find? What's nearest mean? Nearest means chronologically, which one is in the future, but closest to today. So for this product, like there might be a product of the day reference three days from now. And for another product, it's five days from now. And so they're sort of like scheduled and sequenced out that way. So we wanted to know what was the closest of those. And there's multiple scheduled for each because it's kind of like, let's schedule this once and schedule like a couple hundred of them so that we've got the schedule set for the next couple of years. And we don't have to think about it again. But that was really hard to eager load. That was the problem. And so I tried to convert it into a has one and take the logic and put it up into Rails into an association. So both we have many product of the day references, but we also have one nearest product of the day. And Rails was like, this sounds great. And the model tests all were like, cool, the logic still works. And I chipped it and everything was great, except it broke everything. And it silently <laughs> like loaded one or two of these records, but not the rest of them. I don't I still don't quite know what the failure mode was in Rails where it was just like, nah, that seems hard. I'm not going to do it, but I'm not going to tell you that I'm not doing it. But as a result, I got to break production, which is always fun. Really love that. So someone got to revert the code and be like, oh, nope, that wasn't working. We're not sure why, but we had to revert it. I was like, oh, cool. Well, I'm new here, so I'm glad I got to break production. Um, 
that's always the mark of like a new job when you know like you're more ingrained is that you get to break production at least once <laughs> it's important you got to do it and thankfully it wasn't well it's bad to break production and thankfully someone found it early i guess is the the best way to describe it and was able to revert it but then i tried to revisit it so it became clear to me that like eager loading doing some form of database joins includes whatever and pushing that into rails wasn't going to work here so back that out tried a different approach after that so approach number two which also was a failure spoiler alert and graphql apis before i've used batch loading as a way to solve n plus ones because graphql you're going to have some n plus ones that's just going to happen and with graphql it's actually a lot harder to do joins and includes because you want to make the api generic and so people can query in different ways and include sub records or not include them whereas a rest api you're always going to have basically the same structure with this using a joins or includes with graphql isn't quite the recommended thing but instead what you can do is say like let's batch load them so each time we're iterating through all the categories and we say, let's load up all the products for that. You can actually defer resolving those products using promises in Ruby, which I didn't really know existed, but apparently they do. And you can use that to defer it, batch them all up, and then do one big query for the products. So the gem that I've used in the past is called Batch Loader, and it's from XASPARC, which is the username. I don't, it's capitalized in interesting ways, which is why I pronounced it that way. But that's worked well in GraphQL and Active Model Serializers. There's actually an adapter for it that should, in theory, make it work, but totally didn't work. Again, I'm not quite sure what I ran into there, but the complexity of the like, I needed extra logic at the association level, and it just didn't work for me. Is the batching similar? Because you mentioned the word lazy as well. So if, say if you have like 100 records that you'd like to load, it's not a form of pagination where you're giving back like a subset of those records to the endpoint or to the client, but instead you're somehow batching. So you're making like a request for 20 of them, but you're still getting all 100 records before responding to the client. Is that how that batching process is working? Yeah, it's actually a different idea than that sort of active record batching, which is saying like only get me so many at a time, which when I think of that, that's more about memory consumption most of the time when I think like we have too many records to go through. So let's do them in groups. This instead is saying like, imagine that you have three categories, each category has three products. Instead of iterating through and querying for the products three different times, once for each category, you can defer the resolution of the products for a given category. So you say like, yeah, I'll get back to you on that. And the system, the batch loader gem holds on to a reference. So like, all right, I need the products for category one, also for category four, also for category seven. Got it. Now I know all of the categories that you want products for. I will issue one database query for products where category joins blah, 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 ID is one, four, or seven. So it allows you to take those sort of nested queries or nested resolution and batch the nested portion. It's tricky to think about, but if you look at like a JSON structure, imagine for each level of nesting, you're able to flatten it down and only have one query in, instead of the N plus one that's going to happen there. But yeah, it's different than active record batching where you're getting groups at a time. You're still going to get all of the records with this. And it's different than joins or includes, which are database level things. This is happening in the Ruby layer and the this gem is managing all of that for you. Okay, cool. That's helpful. Uh, yeah, thank you for the question because I feel like this is a bunch of stuff that I'm I'm sharing. So it's useful to try and explain it a little bit better. But again, that didn't work, uh, which is always sad. So that's that's attempt number two. That one failed, again, because of having additional logic that I wanted to apply at the nested level. I couldn't get the context threaded through or, I don't know, it just didn't work. So the final version that I ended up with, and this one is running in production and I believe running well. This one uses essentially manual prefetching of all of those deeply nested records. So the like nearest daily product reference 
when I'm in the controller, so before I've even started the serializer adventure, I fetch all of the daily product references for the relevant group. So I pre-fetch them all, but I needed to filter down. And that was where it got really interesting. So I make basically this big cache that I pass into the active model serializer, into the, the serializer object. And that's just there at each level. And they can sort of fetch as needed from that cache, that pre-populated cache, instead of having to hit the database. But there's still a little bit of difficulty because I didn't actually know how to write that database query. So I got like a database merit badge on this adventure. I got to use window functions for the first time, which I don't know. Have you used window functions? Oh, I, I have, but it's been too long ago that I, I couldn't rewrite it today. I feel like this was a very meaningful crossing from the sort of unknown unknown space to the known unknowns. I think I know what they are. I, for a brief period, knew how to do them. And I think the next time I have a problem that is of the same shape, I will know about window functions and I will be able to Google directly for window functions. That's my hope. But to briefly summarize, the idea is, let's say we have this products and categories relationship set up. So products all belong to a category. And what we want to get is each category, let's fetch the name from the database. And I want the top most expensive product for that category. So for each of the categories, get me the name and the top most expensive product. So what you need is this like nested subquery with filtering around it. And in this case, what I needed was for all of the future daily product things, tell me about the one that's nearest. So sort them by date, where the date is greater than today, and get me the first of those. And the window function was able to do that very performantly, very directly. It was a little bit funky. I had to like break the query up and do some two SQL and do a custom joins. But uh, I actually got to reference the advanced active record querying course that is on Upcase that I did with Joe Ferris, which I'll be honest, I did not understand most of what Joe was saying while recording that. So it was great to be able to revisit and be like, oh, okay, I kind of get what he was saying. There's actually an example of using window functions in that. And so I was like, this is awesome. Now I finally, years and years later, know what Joe was talking about. Yeah, I feel like that was my similar experience with using a window function. It's been a while, but it was similar where it's like I needed to do something very much at like the SQL layer. And I just needed a more expressive way to say what I needed with the querying and the filtering and the window function was perfect and it worked well. So that's exciting that you got there and that window function was the answer. Yeah, it was a real adventure. Uh, and again, third attempt, I think we have now drastically improved the performance of that page. I'm really intrigued with my relationship to databases and learning about them. I've just slowly been accruing more knowledge for, I don't know, however many years I've been doing this. And I'm still not done by any means. I keep just adding a little bit more. And there keeps being a ton of value in learning more, like all of the things that I would often get some records from the database and then do things in Ruby to filter or aggregate or do other things. And each time I learn a new trick for, actually, the database is better at that. Let's just have the database do it. It just feels like this wonderful, I guess, SQL being this thing that I can keep revisiting and keep learning is a really pleasant thing in my world is how I would describe it. I'm curious, what are you using for measuring the performance of the page to see that you've improved the M plus one query? So Scout is the APM application performance metrics, I think is maybe what that is, but it's one of the tools like Skylight or New Relic or Scout. They all are like, we'll instrument everything and tell you about every endpoint and how it's going. So that's the end in production, did this actually improve performance? So that's the the base measure there and seeing both overall the like time of all the requests, but then specifically how much active record time it was using. And it can actually specifically highlight N plus ones, which is how I knew to look at this as one of the problem queries in the app. Then locally, actually borrowed some tips from our good friend Ebes, and he recommended an approach that uses 
active support notifications, I want to say, so that you can instrument a portion of code and basically listen to Rails and say, like, hey, Rails, tell me any time. And in this case, it would be a SQL query happens. And I was dumping out all of the operation names. And so within the test case that I had for this endpoint, I wrapped it in a little block that said, hey, print out every SQL operation that happens when I make the get request. And that allowed me to see like, oh, I can definitely see the N plus one and then make my fix. And now I can see that the N plus one is gone and I have a fixed, you know, there are 10 queries now every single time. So that was at the much more application level. But then at the end of the day, got to have the real performance metrics to measure it. That closes a loop for me because I remember I saw you reach out to Ebs and you'd asked him for like a code snippet or something related mm-hmm. to the notifications. And I just thought, oh, Chris is up to something interesting. And then I completely forgot to follow up on what it was for. So that's it's fun that this came full circle now. Now you know what sort of weird incantations I was <laughs> going on about that day. But yeah, so that, that was a whole adventure that spanned like weeks for me and was really tested me, but I feel like I came out the victor. I think. I hope I don't come to work next week. And they're like, oh, we had to revert that. Turns out that one was bad too, but feels good. I've been watching it actually for the past week and it seems like it's working. So nice. But yeah, that's enough of a summary for me. What else is going on in your world? So I am, oh, I'm working with Ember Octane now. We've upgraded to the latest Ember being Octane, thanks to some of the hard work from the client developers. So that's brought some new, fun, shiny toys to play with. And one of those is the new API for components. It's now using Glimmer components instead of like the current traditional components that are implemented. And one of the things that I found charming is that in the docs where it talks about like, you know, what are Glimmer components? What's the new Glimmer API style that you're supposed to use when working with them? They refer to as like the new Glimmer API style or the classic style. So it's not like the old, it's not like the soon to be deprecated, but it's like you're in the classic component style if you haven't moved your way up to the Glimmer components yet. So I've been diving into a bit of those to understand like what are some of the new features that we're getting with Glimmer components. And it seems like there's some really nice improvements. And I've only sort of like dipped my toes into the water to find out more. But some of the highlights are uh, the lifecycle hooks are simplified and easier to use. There's now one-way data flow for the components, which we can circle back to and dive into a bit more. And then there's also the new angle bracket syntax, uh, which you could start using before you upgraded to Octane. So we've been using that already. And then with the angle bracket syntax, you also have named arguments, which is really helpful. And how you access those named arguments is specifically helpful. And I have an example to go with that one too. So circling back to the one-way data flow that's now required in the Glimmer API components or the Glimmer components, going back to the classic way to sort of exemplify how it works, uh, those are two-way bound. So that means if you set a value in a component, then you can also change the value that's passed down to a child component, and it will impact the value that's on the child and the parent component. So let's say if you have a parent component that sets value to the string hello, and then if you pass that down to the child component and the child component can implement a button that changes that string to goodbye. And once a user clicks on that button, it will now reflect that the value is goodbye on both the child and the parent component which can make debugging really challenging and trying to figure out what's causing the change, what's mutating the value. And folks have been working to reduce that by implementing the data down actions up style. But now with Glimmer components, that's actually required where you have to pass down arguments. So now it's a one way data binding of the data flow. You have to, if you wanted to mutate the value on a parent component, you have to pass down to that child component 
a action that can then be sent back up to the parent component to mutate that value. So you have some more required patterns that you have to follow, and it makes it clear to figure out who's mutating the value. That makes sense. Although I, I think my snarky, knowing almost nothing about it take on that would be like, so like, like React then, <laughs> like very similar to React. <laughs> With the exception that the way you're talking about actions sounds kind of novel and like they express data needs in a slightly different way. But is it mostly like a lot of the changes make it look like React? From what I gather, I haven't spent enough time in React to really make a fair comparison. But overall, yes, I feel like the data down actions up may have been inspired from the React style, but I also may be making that up. But that's my impression. I think so. That's my understanding of it. Although when you say actions, I'm interested... Are these functions that you're passing down that you can like invoke that function and that's the mechanism for communication or are they more like message passing style? So if you've been in a Redux app where you have dispatch and so you're like dispatching a string and you're saying like this is the thing that happened but you're not calling a function per se. Dispatch is the like channel by which you communicate it or Elm where you're saying like this event happened but you're not calling a function passed down from above or anything like that. Yeah, it's the first one. You're calling that function okay. versus sort of like a messaging pattern. Gotcha. If it were the messaging, that would be interesting to me because that's closer to the like Elm stuff, which I find really interesting in some ways. But I've also seen people not love uh, just because of the like boilerplate and wiring up and all of that. But yeah, the data down actions up then sounds a lot like a naming of the inherent pattern that React had. Yeah, it feels like a nice move for the Ember community to sort of like not only like preach and talk about following that particular pattern, but now as you're opting into Octane and Glimmer components, you're now being required to follow that pattern. Mm -hmm. So you're, I want to say encouraging, but you're not encouraging, you're mandating <laughs> that people follow this. It's pattern. the best way to encourage. Yeah, it's just to mandate it. Just make it a rule. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has feel encouraged. It's now required <laughs> to do this. <laughs> you are legally bound. But, you know, feel free to do whatever you want. But you're definitely going to do the thing that we say. Uh, I will say I, I feel like my earlier comment sounded a bit snarky or whatever. But there are some aspects of Ember that I absolutely love. Particularly they get routing right. They care deeply about routing and have that as a first class concern. And that's a thing that, man, I wish we could lean into just a little bit more everywhere else in the world. And certainly every camp has their router now and, and does that well. But I love that. I think Ember, more so than any other framework that I've seen, really embraced the idea of routes and sort of championed it. And that's the, again, it's sort of enforced. It's the only way to do things in Ember, as far as I understand it. And I love that that's the way that they've structured it. Yeah, when I was joining this client and I discovered that I would be working with Ember, I worked with Ember a long time ago, back in 2015, 16, something like that. So a while back. And that was the only thing I remembered because there was someone on my team that was introducing Ember to the tech stack and we were moving over to start using Ember. And so this person would give us sort of like updates and pair with us and help us learn sort of how to work with Ember and encourage everyone on the team to adopt it. And I just remember routes, 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 routes. That was like the most important part of Ember, uh, which has come in handy and diving back into it for this project. And one of the other changes that they've introduced with Ember Octane is the angle bracket syntax. So when you're calling a component and then the particular syntax that you use to call that component, but how you pass in the arguments is a bit nicer where when you pass in the arguments to the child component, that child component, if it's referencing some of the arguments that were passed in, you prefix it with an at sign now. 
So it's clear to the reader that if you are using this variable, it is coming from the parent versus that was one of my big complaints in working with Ember is looking at values in the component or in the templates. It was very hard to like figure out like, where is this value coming from? And I always feel like I had to go grepping to find where something lived and that felt concerning that I couldn't like easily determine where something was defined. So this feels really nice. So now every time I see that at sign, I'm like, okay, at least I know where you're defined. And that feels like a really nice change. For the new style for referencing the past in arguments, that one came up uh, as a surprise for me. So we just released the upgrade. So our application is now using Octane, which is really exciting. I was introducing a new feature and you can still use some of the old syntax for the component. So if you're still using an Ember component instead of a Glimmer component, then you can still follow the old syntax. You don't have to use the new style unless you're specifically using that new Glimmer component. So I'd introduced a template and then I was still using the old syntax because I hadn't shifted to using the new syntax and it seemed to work. But then suddenly when my branch was updated to pull in all the changes from master, so now I was also using Octane as well, all of a sudden my page broke. And I thought perhaps something was wrong with the API. I wasn't getting back data. And so I dug into that and I could see that I was getting all the data. Everything looked fine. The data was there on the page. But then for some reason, my value that I was trying to render was undefined. But then I had another component. So I had two components. It was kind of, if it was like of a status this, then render this component. If it was a different status, render the other component. One of those components worked. The other one didn't. And I couldn't understand why, because they were both following the same syntax. One of them had access to the value that was being passed in. The other one thought the value that was being passed in was undefined. And I reached out to a friend, one of the other developers that I'm working with, and thankfully he was part of the upgrade. So he was familiar with the new syntax. And we discovered, or he shared with me, that if you have a template-only component, then Ember is generating a Glimmer component for you on the background. So that template was mandating that I needed to use the Glimmer API, but my other template had an Ember back component so I could use the old syntax. So that led to kind of a fun surprise where it was one of those like, cause I was like, I'm just missing something. Like clearly I've made a typo. It's something small. That seems to be the theme for this week. Like clearly I'm just missing something small that's here cause this was working fine and now it's not and I can't see what it is. And logically I can't figure out what's different. So it was a satisfying sort of conclusion that, okay, at least now I know that if it's a template only, I've got a Glimmer component, I need to follow the API. Otherwise I can use the classic style, which we're trying to not follow anyways. I just like saying it particularly around the classic thing like i remember when or i don't remember it but i know of the time when coke switched their recipe and then they went back to coke classic or was it coke original or something like that but i'm just as you're saying this i'm like are they going to go back to ember classic are they going to revert it in this big pr campaign to be like oh no sorry everyone it sounds like from what i've heard octane sounds great and is a definitely a move in the right direction but that's just the thing that comes to mind it's interesting. One of the things I've heard about Ember consistently is that the upgrade path is excellent and that they like do a really good job of making sure that they don't do breaking changes and that they sort of are respectful to the community that has adopted these technologies and saying like, hey, you know what? We're not going to break your stuff. We're going to give you a path to continue forward and get on the all of the new fancy stuff, but you can do it gradually and that you'll have hopefully a pleasant experience. And so this is an interesting case where it sort of did that and it kind of tried to magically make things work for you, but also secretly broke in a subtle way and you found yourself with another undefined. Undefined is not a function as a thing that I've been told so many times in my life. It's never going to be a function. Stop trying to make undefined happen. <laughs> Stop trying to. 
Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't part of the upgrade team and moving us up to Octane, but it does seem to have gone fairly well. And it has been like a pleasant experience because that was one of my intrigues as well. It's like, well, if we have this new component API that we need to follow, do we have to touch all the components? Do we have to update all of them to now if you have like a past an argument, we need to now update all of those to use the new like argument syntax. And that's not true, which is nice in ways. So that way it does support that existing style. But then if you're like me, and you're still working on moving into the new API space, and you're still writing stuff in the previous way, then you run into some confusing edges. But yeah, so far, it seems to have been like a fairly pleasant experience. But then again, that's coming from someone who who didn't actually do the work. Mm, Pleasant from the outside. (laughs) (laughs) It was pleasant, like just from observing to see how the work was going. And it's something that's been worked on in sort of like spare time. But even that scene, because I've watched them from the sidelines every now and then if someone's upgrading something and it's one of those like it carries on for months and months. And this one, I feel like it didn't carry on that long. So yeah, that could also be a sign. And they've got some nice like upgrade documentation that'll walk you through all the changes that you have to do to make the upgrade versus the stuff that you can slowly update later as you go. It's always interesting seeing the approach that projects take to breaking changes and to API compatibility and things like that. Like Ember certainly does that. The React project, the core React project, as far as I can tell, is very, very purposeful about not breaking things. And I think largely that's because Facebook has, I don't know, 100,000 React components or something like that. And they're using every different variant of the syntax and you know class structure and whatever from the past. And so they want to make sure all of that still works. But in contrast, there's the React Router project, which... I recently had my adventure with and it's just interesting the way folks think about how high that bar should be of like no breaking changes. Okay, but we changed the version, so it's fine, right? And I felt the pain personally around React Router and it looks as though React Router now resupports the thing that I had to like migrate away from. And that was a little sad to see for me. And I, I get why that like they want better code, they want to produce better patterns and things like that, but it's just it is a trade-off. And there's the extra maintenance burden for the Ember maintainers and for the React maintainers. And the React Router crew is able to take a different approach and frankly have a much cleaner code base, I'm sure. But at what cost, I say? I have found this is slightly different, but it's just something that I was thinking about this week when I was looking into like what find method am I using when I'm not importing that find. So circling back to that earlier error that I was debugging in that test is that I really miss in Ruby how I can find the source definition of a method. So in Ruby, like I can use the method and then pass in the name of the method and use something like dot source location or in Ruby Pry, you can use show source and then have like my object dot my method and find it that way. And in JavaScript, figuring out where find lived that it was on the window object was a bit of an adventure. And I looked in all the places that I could think to look. But as far as I know, in JavaScript, there's just no way like if you don't know our methods to find and finding what it's truly being called on. Do you have any tricks for that? Or is that something you've thought about? Dynamically, like what you were saying of the method method in Ruby, that would be my approach there. In JavaScript, I don't. Although interestingly, I've I feel this pain less and less over time because JavaScript has transitioned to having explicit module syntax and imports and exports. So there's basically like the global namespace where I should never be using anything. And then there's things that I import directly into the file and module that I'm working on. And so I've felt this pain less, especially in contrast to like Ruby and Rails projects where it's like, where the heck did that method come from? Like who magically generated this at runtime? And so it's, I found it more necessary, more like a skill I have to have. But to answer your direct question, no, I do not know of any way to dynamically figure out at runtime in JavaScript where a thing is. I wonder if that is possible. I want to know. 
Yeah, I don't know. You raise a really good point, though, because you're right. In Ruby, I feel like I certainly need that skill to be able to find where something's defined because I just, yeah, like you said, there's no telling where it came from. But with JavaScript, it's not a pain that I have felt that often until I ran into it with this test. And the only way I got there is I think I started console logging a bunch of things and I was looking to see, like, what is it being called on? And usually in the source, it'll show me, like, it's mocha.describe or it's the chai.expect so I can see where it's being called or where it's being defined. And for this particular find method, there was nothing that it was prefixed by. So I just started looking into like, well, what is what is self? What is the the source here? That who I'm am I? <laughs> who am I at this state? And then that was how I got to the window object that it came to me that that's, that's the object. And then I just had to go look up the window object and be like, do you define find? And sure enough, there was. If we were to just embrace pure functional programming, this would never be a problem. It's out there. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so that's really all I've got on Ember. I may have some updates as I get to explore Octane a bit further, but those are the highlights that I have for now and some of the things that I'm excited to work with. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at S Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. That should be our new ending. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.